Did you know a podcast episode like this can provide literally dozens of marketing content assets for your business? It's brought to you by Content Monster, your go-to for engaging marketing content, like this podcast or remote video production. It's not just a podcast, it's your marketing powerhouse. Visit contentmonster.com to learn more. That's contentmonsta.com. Welcome to Season 2 of Under the Hood, a podcast series brought to you by Synapse. In this series hosted by Synapse founder and CEO, Sankat Patak, Under the Hood takes a deep dive into various challenges and opportunities in fintech. Topics range from technical design and architecture to regulatory and policy challenges. Hello everyone, welcome to Under the Hood. Today we're talking about taking credit global. In our previous episodes, we've unpacked how this new trend of opening up USD accounts for non U.S. residents has been picking up. And today my guest is Misha, and Misha is the co-founder and CEO of Nova Credit. And him and I started chatting about would similar things happen to credit as well that's happening to deposits, which is uh, more and more people are starting to pick one currency that is the most stable to be able to get banked. And uh, Misha and I got into a really good conversation about would this happen to credit. So I thought I would invite Misha uh, have a light conversation about it and try to get into some details. Misha, welcome. Pleasure to be here. Thanks for having me on the show. Yeah, for sure. Do you want to maybe introduce yourself to the listeners and then we can dive in? Happy to. Yeah, so um, Misha here, uh, one of the co-founders and, and CEO of uh, of Nova Credit. Um, for those of you that, that don't know us, um, we're uh, a fintech that's been around for about six, seven years. Uh, and we really started by solving the problem of uh, financial identity mobility. So millions of folks move around the world. Uh, when they move from one country to another, they need to apply for very, very basic financial services, a place to live, a credit card, an auto loan, a bank account, a cell phone plan. And when they apply for those things, they need to have US credit history. But by virtue of having just arrived in the United States, they are credit invisible. And so for for you know for years, this population has sort of gone through the many year process of building credit in order to get access to those things. And uh, we solved that problem by uh, having aggregated the world's credit reporting system. So we partner with Experian, Equifax, TransUnion, CRIF, Credit Info, various independent bureaus, and we now have connectivity into about two billion uh, consumer credit files from from all around the world. And we can move that around the world uh, to help people uh, not have to start over. So that's really where we started the business. And then we also do some work in cash flow underwriting and uh, a lot more there. We could we could unpack with uh, with with some more time. At the core of it, when I initially heard about Nova Credit, the thing that really jumped out to me that was very relevant, given I'm an immigrant, is this credit portability, the idea that if I change my country, uh, whatever I've built in credit, I'm not leaving that behind. I'm taking that with me. Uh, now, on top of that, we're starting to see this trend where uh, credit portability and where you live and where you don't live and what currencies you decide to bank in, uh, the, the the lines are kind of starting to blur. And Misha, I'd love to hear your perspective on this whole space, like just globalization of financial services and its various work streams. What are you seeing and what's your perspective? Yeah. So it's it's obviously a topic that's very near and near and dear to to our hearts, um, and I think the the core uh, applications of, of of what we've built really are the you know the tip of the spear in terms of the uh, the opportunity set that that is out there. Maybe I'll I'll spend just a minute like explaining a little bit about um, how we're currently used in the ecosystem, and then and then maybe I can talk a little bit about globalization and some some kind of bigger bigger picture thoughts on on the space. So. Um, you know, we we uh, we're, we're a B two B two C business, and so we've we've partnered with some of the leading financial institutions in the world. We support customers like American Express and HSBC and Verizon, uh, SoFi, and 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 others with uh, providing consumer permission data. And so, like the the basic way that the credit passport works, and the, the credit passport really is our flagship product, where you know we've aggregated credit reporting information from all around the world, and we have the ability in real time to look at a credit report uh, from India, from the UK, from Canada, from uh, Brazil, from Nigeria, from Kenya, from the Philippines, all, all over the world. Uh, we have connectivity in over 20 markets at this point. 
and normalize that raw information into one single global standard uh, where the underlying raw data is standardized, the underlying attributes are standardized. So like how many trade lines do you have? How many days past due have you gone? And then the underlying scores uh, are actually standardized into you know, a well-understood 300 to 850 FICO range. And so that capability, that global connective tissue that uh, enables credit portability as well as the standardization of information is is the credit passport. And so that capability uh, has been deployed, you know, let's say with, with American Express where, you know, let's say you just moved to the U.S. from, I don't know, from London and uh, you apply for uh, any of their credit cards and they determine that you don't have sufficient U.S. credit history. And so typically you would now be rejected for that application. Uh, instead, what happens is that we allow a consumer to uh, bring their history, so basically to, to, to port it over from wherever they're from, and for that information to be seamlessly accessed, transferred, transformed, upgraded, made compliant with U.S. standards and delivered uh, right into the American Express um, decisioning process that allows someone to go in, near, near instantaneously from, you know, from a no to a yes. And so in doing so, we've been able to help you know, hundreds of thousands of people uh, enter the financial system who were otherwise uh, credit invisible. Um, and uh, you know, that, that product's been now uh, in market for, you know, with, with partners of that scale for about three, four years. Um, so you know, we've, we've reached a fair bit of, uh, let's say, product maturity on, on that front. And you know, as, you, as you take a step, step back and think about what we're, what we're doing, we're allowing a, a US-based financial institution to underwrite a consumer who has physically migrated from country A to country B before they've established any meaningful financial identity in country B, right? So here in the United States. And when I, when I say tip of the spear, what, what, I, what I really mean is that, you know, I, I think it's a matter of time and I think we're going to get into like just how far away are we uh, and, how, and how, where, where are the early signs of where this is going to happen. I think it's a matter of time before this concept of, you know, financial access for those who physically migrate transforms into financial access for those who digitally migrate, how they bank, how they borrow. Um, and there's a whole host of nuances that we're, you know, we're, we're going to get into it here. Um, but I think that that theme of, of globalization is one that uh, is, you know, an unstoppable force with a big asterisk, which is, yeah, COVID, uh, pen, a pandemic definitely stops globalization or at really slows it down. Um, but you know we're, we're seeing that pick right back up uh, in record speed right now this year. So um, more more to talk through there. That's okay. So I I find this distinction very profoundly helpful. One people physically migrating, second people digitally migrating. Uh, it turns out, and again I can completely uh, corroborate this fact pattern when before COVID. Um, when we started looking at uh, the global cash use case, which is this account that enabled folks that did not traditionally live in the US to be able to open up an account, it primarily was focused on travel, which is people coming into the US and wanting to spend in USD while they were here for various reasons. As soon as COVID hit um, and we had various economic policies take shape across the planet, we saw an increase in inflation and even though people weren't moving around, people's desire to divest at a local currency started to increase. And uh, a US seemed the most stable, USD seemed the most stable out of all, and people digitally started migrating into this ecosystem. Um, what are you seeing on your side around how far away are we between this physical migration trend and this digital migration trend? Oh. Yeah, I wish I had a crystal ball on, on on this one. I mean, that that's kind of the the uh, the heart of the of the question. It's like you know, is is, is auto are autonomous vehicles you know a couple years away or ten years away? Is you know uh, you know a true AI a, a couple years away or or is it you know is it still decades away? Fusion yeah. a couple years away or, or decades away? I, I mean, I, I need to answer that to do justice to answering that that question. You have to start to pick apart the pieces. Yeah. Um, that, um, you know, make it a challenging problem to solve and, and maybe just like zooming out for a moment. I think what, what we're, what we're talking about from the perspective of a, you know, a, a U.S. lender or a U.S. fintech is, you know, today you think about, um, you know, the credit passport and the value of credit portability, uh, really from the lens of people who are physically coming here, 
yeah. uh, and in need of establishing their financial financial life. And so that that's a you know relatively narrow, high, super high value, but relatively narrow subset of the U.S. population. That's you know blue ocean, underserved, high transacting. Um, and in many ways, you know, will be high earning or already are high earning. It's largely knowledge workers. Um, and so you can, you can think about this segment as somewhere in the order of call it uh, five to 10 million folks who are here in the United States that we can take from invisible to like full file, full credit file. But the, the, the beauty of, you know, this concept of credit portability is you can start to think about connectivity into the 2 billion consumers that we have access to around the world. Yeah. And that dramatically changes how you think about this segment. Instead of people who are physically here, it's really those that have sufficient information to be confidently underwritten um, around around the world. Um, but in order to to do that, underwriting is only one piece of the puzzle, right? I know obviously Synapse has, has worked tirelessly on on challenges around you know identity, KYC, AML, fraud. Um, so like the the identity layer, we think is is really complex when it comes to cross border. Yeah. Um, and obviously the underwriting layer has, has, has complexity. And I think we, we play a really important role, uh, in, in doing, in doing so compliantly through consent, uh, in yeah. a way that, you know, uh, satisfies the requirements of all the big, you know, four letter words like GDPR that, that are out there. Um, there are a whole host of challenges around foreign exchange, right? When you, when you think about some of the previous financial crises that, that have emerged where, you know, there is a, um, underlying mismatch uh, between someone's income and their liabilities right and how, how do you yeah. how do you how do you manage for that as a risk officer someone who's actually bearing the risk right where let's yeah. say you're you're lending in USD but the person you're lending to is earning in Mexican pesos or British pounds or whatever, mm -hmm. whatever the underlying currency is to the extent there's a major swing in the deval in, in, dev in the devaluation of the income currency the liability, uh, and the effective interest rate dramatically spikes, right? Yeah. And so the ability for the consumer to service that loan dramatically spikes. And there's examples of that uh, within within Europe um, that I've you know I've, I've read and studied uh, between the EU and Poland as an example historically, mm -hmm. or or the British or the the Swiss, um, you know the, the Swiss franc and 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 the and the European and and the and the euro. Like plenty of examples of that. So I think the the foreign exchange puzzle is one that. I haven't yet seen like a real at scale solution for, yeah. um, and then there's, you know, the whole world of, uh, collections, uh, you know, to the extent things do go side, which actually th that one feels, uh, like somewhat solved at this point. Like there are international cross-border collection agencies out there that, that, yeah. you know, you can think of in a very similar light as a regular collections agency. Um, and then finally is, I think potentially the longest pole in the tent is, is the regulatory puzzle, yeah. uh, which is, you know, how, how does, a regulator in one country really think about a capability like this when yeah. the bank that is providing the financial product is outside of the purview of their rec regulation and how much extraterritoriality do they have in their in their power. Yeah. So I, know I threw a lot at you there, uh, but maybe we can start to, to pick away some of those pieces. Yeah, let's, let's unpack some of this. And this is why I'm excited to have you on this uh, podcast. Let's pick regulatory. What I really admire about Nova Credit is this consent-based information transfer, which I can only imagine is impossible without consulting, working, getting approvals from the regulators. So you are probably one of the very few people on the planet that can, that has a much more wider view of this, which is how do you think regulators would or should see capabilities like this where people are not physically migrating but digitally migrating um yeah it's a it's a really it's a really hard question so maybe i'll, I'll start with like one of the big aha moments in in our business um this is you know we were still in in grad school at stanford and still trying to like fumble around thinking through you know the drunken walk of like where could product market fit be and like we identified a problem which is you know half of the graduate student population of any graduate program consists of you know, international students, 100% of them will tell you some version of the story that we can now solve. Um, but to actually go out and solve this problem, you know, the first principle thinking would say that you have to be able to get the underlying information. Otherwise, you're not actually, you don't have any data advantage in serving this customer. Otherwise, you're just like making a bet on a segment that, yeah. um, you know, that may or may not play out. And so we, we went out and we, and we thought, okay, like you do some desktop homework. There are 
about 300 credit bureaus in, in, in the world. They're growing at like a very fast rate in the past 30 years. The, the world's gone from about 30 to about 300 credit bureaus. Mm-hmm. Um, and credit bureaus are, are built by, you know, the big three U.S. credit bureaus. They're built by the World Bank and the IFC who help sponsor them because they help create a safe and sound consumer banking sector. And that allows for uh, accelerated uh, financial access. And with that comes accelerated GDP growth and economic growth. So like central banks and, and regulators are highly incentivized to create a safe and sound banking sector. And they want the creation of credit bureaus. And then you can start to break down the nuances of the types of credit bureaus that exist around the world. Uh, what what are credit registries versus credit bureaus? Which, which, you know, the simple answer there is registries are typically like government owned bureaus tend to be more uh, private sector um, and, you know, registries sometimes are uh, required furnishing from all the financial services. So there's, there's a lot we can unpack around data standards and, um, you know, you, you can go into that in a, in a fair bit of detail. But like one of the, the, the issue we kept running into was like, well, what is your right, Nova Credit, to like access mm-hmm. this information around, around the world? And, and my intent here isn't to like reveal our secret sauce or anything like that, but to state a very simple principle, which is that like, the direction of substantially all regulation around the world is that consumers own their data. Yeah. That's the under, that's the fundamental premise of, of GDPR as well as like consumers own their data. They have a right to access it. They have a right to see what you have. They have a right to force you to delete it if they, if, if, yeah. if they want you to. Um, and so, you know, a lot of the, the, the foundational concept that we built our business on is, is that very concept. That was the aha moment where, you know, we were speaking with one of the bureaus and the bureau was like, why do you have a right to access this? And I and, and I said, do you believe that consumers own their data? And and they're like, yeah, of course. And they're like, well, do you believe that consumers have a right to their data? And they're like, yeah, of course. And they're like, do you believe that a consumer can access their data no matter where they are? And they're like, uh, yeah, I don't, I don't, we don't have an issue with that. And I'm like, great. Like that's, that's all that we're doing here. We're allowing a consumer to access their own information, whether they're physically in the, you know, in their home country or physically in a new country. And once they have access to it, it's really up to them to determine what they want to do with it. Yeah. Um, and that, that really served as like the, the philosophical approach behind, uh, behind Nova Credit. Um, and, uh, you know, after seven years of partnership building, meeting regulators, building data integration, standardizing information, we now, we now have connectivity to about 2 billion um, consumers all, all around the globe, right? Which I think is, is more than any bureau that's, that's out there mm-hmm. by a pretty significant margin at this point. Um, but like now put yourself back in the shoes of a, of a regulator. And so you ask a regulator and you say, you know, do you believe your consumers own their data? Like you, you walk through the same logic and the argument still holds, but there's, there's, a, there's, a, there's another argument, which is from a uh, safety and soundness perspective, um, a regulator has a duty to protect the interests of their people, their citizens. And they can only really do that with respect to financial institutions who they have some jurisdiction power over. Mm-hmm. And now you're going to introduce, you know, lenders outside of their home country. So I'll, I'll, I'll pick on, I don't know, uh, our neighbors to, to the south as, as an example. So let's say Mexico. Yeah. Um, and, and this is all illustrative, but like if you're a Mexican regulator, um, you have a duty to protect the interests of your of your citizens. You want the creation of a credit bureau. You want that to exist. Um, you believe that consumers own their data. They can move their data around. But if all of a sudden, you know, to play out an extreme scenario, the entire population of, of Mexico stopped banking with banks in Mexico and instead started banking with banks in the United States and the Mexican regulator has no oversight over those banks, that's a problem. Yeah. Right. And so like that, that's where the tension comes in around, you know, individual right uh, and interest versus, you know, national uh, safety and soundness concerns. Just to push back on that notion a little bit, is is that a problem or is that just free market? Because if the Mexican banking system is a better product, then now people have a choice of picking two versus right now the de facto is they can only pick the Mexican banking market. Right. That, that's the central question, right? Like it is... Um, how pro-consumer um, uh, will a regulator stand, right? Like um, in some of these markets, um, they're very free market, right? Like it's like the consumers on the day, you can move it around, you know, any way you want. In other markets, and we, you know, you see, you see this in China, certainly, yeah. you know, there are um, data localization requirements that mm-hmm. prevent the movement of data outside of, 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 your, of one's country. 
um, that make a lot of what we do very, very complex in, in nature. And there, there are ways that you can navigate through that through more, more clear consent, more clear authentication, you know, things that we've, we've learned how to, how to navigate over, over the years. Um, but if you believe in free markets, if you believe that the industry and global financial services and the globalization of consumer finance will ultimately be a free market, um, then you have to believe that the end state is one where any consumer anywhere in the world should be able to bank and borrow from any financial institution anywhere in the world, the same way that you can go on Amazon and buy a product yeah. from anywhere in the world. Like why does financial services have to, by definition, be different if you believe that, that you know, you're not selling poison, right? You have, to, you have yeah. to believe that what you're selling is actually beneficial to the consumer. Yeah. Um, and even if there is a jurisdiction that is selling poison, uh, hopefully that is publicly evident and known and the consumer can make the decision of not picking poison. Right. I think that's right. But I, I think there's, there, there will be a, I think a, a period of regulatory, um, familiarization, education, conservatism around how, how to think about this yeah. because ultimately it, it requires a, a loss of power Yeah, for some of these regulators. And I think different countries are going to have very different views on their willingness to do that. Yeah. It, it's similar, maybe just add one thought. It's, it's similar to like the, the, the struggle a central bank has and whether to like defend their own currency yeah. or like peg to the dollar. Yeah. Right. And, and, and like that decision has so many broad economic implications, but you can really only fight the tides of free market for so long. Yeah. Do you think this evolution plays out any differently than crypto? Or do you think, I feel like this plays out a little bit more responsibly than crypto, but not any more different. And it depends if, if you and I do our jobs right. I think it, it can it can play out a lot more responsibly. Um, I mean, time time will tell. I, like as, as we as we pontificate about what you know this future free market globalized consumer financial world could could look like. It's not clear to me that it has to go through a decentralized crypto blockchain based Reckoning. approach. I, I think it might, um, and, and I think there are certain factors that make that, you know, web three world more compelling than the web two world. But I think there are also a lot of factors that make it less compelling. Um, yeah. Particularly around like regulatory familiarity and comfort around some of these concepts. Um, yeah. I mean, I think what's not to distract from the topic at hand, but what's making um, crypto a little harder and more noisy is you have L1 tokens, you have uh, commodity tokens, and you have stable coins all commingled and coexisting into one ecosystem where it's hard to differentiate intellectually what should the consumer be buying. And if we ended up at a place where uh, commodities were regulated like commodities, L1 tokens were regulated like a stock, and uh, uh, the first real use case of blockchain that could scale was stable coin with... Uh, publicly known reserves, then that's not that bad. Like that, that, that gives consumers a feature that they don't have today, which is to your point, borrowing your words of when you physically migrate, you can also physically hold the cash at hand in that, in that country. When you digitally migrate, you're unable to do so. You, you're unable to self custody, but stablecoin provides a really good feature and capability for consumers, which is self custody, but it's very noisy with everything else that's surrounding it. Right. Yeah, but I mean, um, I think there's also open question of like how, how important is being able to hold the physical currency in, in, in the longer term? Like, I, I don't know, I, I think that eventually goes away in substantially all use cases, including in developing markets where we're starting to, you know, that's certainly taking place. Um, but I, I think the hesitance, um, my hunch is it, it, it takes form in a non- um, I think there's a faster path to scale in a, in a non-stablecoin um, world than there is in a stablecoin world. I agree. Because I of agree. some of the regulatory um, uh, uh, friction. Yeah. Well, let's take the second piece, which is um, identity, KYC, fraud. Uh, I personally have an opinion as to how Nova Credit could help there as well. Um, but 
where do you think we are? What's missing? Um, that was the second big thing that you said that's really needed to be able to move the ball here. Yeah. Um, so I think like the, 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 the conceptual question here is, uh, maybe I'd break it into two pieces. Um, as a lender, as the person who is like putting dollars at risk, uh, how do you know with confidence that the person that you're lending to, in fact, is the person that they say they are, in fact, is the person whose credit record you're looking at. Um, second piece of, and we can unpack that one a little bit. Second piece of that is, how do you satisfy local market regulations around KYC AML for someone that um, does not have uh, US identity? And so, um, depending on a bank's underlying customer identification requirements, um, may or may not, like, be permissible as a customer. Yeah. Um, so I, I think that the first question um, of like, how, how does a lender, how do you, how do you get confident with, with identity matching? Um, you know, a lot of great solutions out there uh, in the identity verification space, a lot of biometric players, a lot of passport scanning players, um, you know, uh, players who can, you can tap into third-party databases around the world. Um, we do some of that as well. I think where, where, where we are, uh, where we currently differentiate is um, not only can we help somebody prove that they have a valid record, valid and current record in a foreign bureau. So if we continue with the Mexico example, you know, we can, we can, if you, if you tell me someone's identity, I can go and confirm that that identity is in fact real uh, in, you know, both Mexican credit bureaus. We work with both of them. We can then go a step further and ensure that that consumer satisfactorily responds to some authentication protocol. Yeah. Um, and so that takes different forms around the world. Sometimes that's a one-time password. Sometimes that's knowledge-based authentication. So similar to what you'll see in um, creating a Credit Karma account or, or logging into NerdWallet. Um, other times it's um, uh, you know high cardinality matching, which is just the local standard for how they authenticate because it's that you need enough fields that are long long strings to be able to pull it together. But I think that that problem is becoming increasingly solved and across the yeah. various solutions, you can kind of cobble together something with enough coverage and enough confidence. Uh, and we can we can unpack those a little bit more. I, I think on the, the US regulatory side, um, that one's harder right now. I think that one takes a little bit more time. I think there will be some early movers um, in, you know, in, in banks who get comfortable with it. But from like a, a, a U.S. regulatory perspective, as, as I understand it, and I'll caveat, I'm not a lawyer, you should consult with, you know, the right legal counsel on all of this. But as, as I under, understand, you know, a, a lot of the, the rules and regulations around uh, KYC AML, there's nothing in U.S. law that requires you to have a U.S. address. No, it doesn't. You need to have, you, know, you, need, to, you need to collect or verify name, date of birth, address, unique identifier. And the, the, the address doesn't specify it must be a U.S. address, but many U.S. financial institutions decide to interpret it as a U.S. address. And so yeah. it's, it's, it's precisely in that compliance judgment of interpretation where the regulatory puzzle sits. Yeah. Um, which I think is also a feature, not a flaw, because uh, there's a high level of scrutiny within the U.S. regulatory environment, which yields itself to a better product at the end of the day for consumers, in my opinion. Totally. Um, so KYC, identity, credit underwriting, they're getting closer to being solved problems with various pieces, database, uh, 2FA authentication, uh, which I think is quite unique on the KYC side and I think could arguably be um, one of the more stronger ways to verify a customer, uh, uh, and especially the ownership of the identity for the customer. Um, what about financial fraud, credit underwriting fraud, uh, or just to your point, let's take two pieces. One is just generalizing fraud globally. The second big piece is what you said, uh, uh, external factors dictating delinquencies. So foreign exchange being the primary uh, contributing factor to that. What do you think about those? Where do you think those pieces are uh, today versus what's needed? Um. I mean, I, I think like broad, there are some great companies out there. Like, like I'll give a shout out to Centrelink and, and Naftali. I think they, they do some incredible work in the fraud space here in, in the U.S. Um, climate. 
Um, unfortunately, they're not everywhere in the world yet. We, we hope we hope they go everywhere. It can help fight um, fraud all over the world. Um, but I think solutions like that are, will continue to form around the world, which will help create additional fraud uh, protection. I think tools like you know 2FA, I think further help combat fraud. I think tools like open banking uh, also yeah. further help um, combat fraud. Whereas part of your credit underwriting flow, you know, we can we can connect into your bank account the same way that we can link into like a Plaid or a Finicity and some of uh, their competitors around the world. I think that continues to great, create greater and greater confidence into the identity match and the custody of, 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 a, of an account as a proxy for someone's credit profile. Um, but I think the fraud problem is like close or there or close. And, and I think it's, it's a country by country question. Um, the, the credit bureau problem, I'd say we've, we've solved it in the countries that we are operating in. We're not yeah. all over the world yet. We've got more work to do. You know, there's some obvious markets where, you know, a solution like ours would be so valuable or, or a solution like what we could create, um, you know, markets that are going through hyperinflation um, are, 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 are obvious areas where a, a solution yeah. like this is so needed, like, you know, like a Venezuela um, but there is no credit bureau there, or there, there was, but it was, um, I believe, either divested or shut down. Yeah. Um, I believe it was by Experian um, a few years back. Um, foreign, foreign exchange, I think, is like, um, it's, is a tricky one. Um, and I've, I've spent some time with some of my former colleagues um, from Goldman thinking through this one in, on, on like some of those FX desks. Um, but I, th I think there's a there's a willingness from the big um, trading houses to to create facilities that can create this that can solve this problem. I mean, um, but I haven't seen anyone really do it yet. And um, you know, there are a variety of different approaches. And some of the some of the remittance companies have done a good job of like chipping away at pieces of this puzzle yeah. uh, around how you, how you move, remove some of the friction of the exchange. But from from a, from the perspective of a lender. Let's just focus on that for for a second. Like, if I want to lend, you know, a hundred million dollars worth of you know consumer loans into to Mexican consumers, let's say, or Canadian consumers, or whoever whoever it is, um, I'm going to want to hedge uh, the volatility of the currency mismatch. Yeah. Right? And so, like, there are facilities that do this at a corporate level. Like, I think foreign exchange is solved at a corporate level. It hasn't been solved at a consumer level, but when consumer risk is aggregated, it's at a scale that is worthy of being solved for uh, for the big um, uh, the big you know trading providers. And so I, I think like I think this is this is one of these problems where the industry is ready to solve it, but I haven't seen anyone yet actually take on the challenge of cracking it. Yeah, my my hunch is that version one of global credit. Uh, is provided to people who are either highly trusted or highly verifiable or have high net worths, or in some form or fashion are already divested and hold USD holdings. Uh, a good example of this is um, a, a high net worth Brazilian individual already having a bank account or a broker dealer account in the US and holds stock um, or holds cash, and now a margins provided to them in form of a credit card that arguably is more fancy looking than Amex and they find it to be very useful because now they have a USD spend card versus um, uh, a local card with higher tax. Um, then I suspect, to your point, there's a big opportunity for somebody to be able to, to, be able to create API-based FX hedging platform that's very straightforward to use. Um, uh, you can plug into it, you can arbitrage, you can do some uh, um, currency hedging. And as the initial version of global credit, which are for people who are a little bit more wealthy, starts taking shape, I think that opens up the startup ecosystem for somebody to build a product like that on top of Goldman, or on top of Forex, whichever platform you want to use and make it really easy for everyone to use. I, th I think that's right. Um, I think there is a... You know, I think that there's a startup idea in there yeah. uh, for for someone to go out and 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 crack. Uh, I don't think it's going to be us on the on the FX side. Oh. Um, and, but I, I think the, the the broader point you made you made here, I think, is, is spot on, um, which is that global credit already exists in mm -hmm. a way, right? Like there are um, there are 
you know, many people around the world um, who have the ability to to do this. Maybe I'll, I'll call out like a couple pockets that that we see it already. Yeah. You know, one one is the like ultra high net worth like mortgage, right? So like yeah. if you are a high net worth, ultra high net worth, you know, you have an account with let's say you know one of the big London London banks. You live in Mexico. You live in other. You know, it doesn't really matter. Like they will figure out a way to underwrite you and provide you a mortgage if you are an important client to them, right? Yeah. And that's because they have high confidence in your identity. They have high confidence in your uh, in your underlying ability to 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 pay. Um, and um, you know they and, and then you are ultimately a high LTV customer for for them in aggregate, and so they want to continue to retain and keep you happy. So like that yeah. that's already happening. I think we're, we're we're seeing another example of this, which is you know pe- people living in you know, in let's say the United States or in the UK who, you know, maybe are from India originally have family in India and they're going to borrow in the US and the UK and use those funds to effectively purchase a home. So it's basically mm-hmm. like a mortgage, even though it's not directly tied to a property in India. Um, and, um, you know, they, they have full right to do that, right? And, the, and yeah. the, the, cost of ca- the, the cost of capital advantage is so significant that it's, it's worthwhile so long as your income is 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 cor- is is, is um, the same as the currency of your liability, yeah, well, I think it makes total sense. Um, and to your point, and this is my general argument around uh, global cash and global credit, um, there are subsections of the population who are already living in that reality. It's just not accessible to the masses easily. Right. The, the other kind of long long term the view on the, the FX point is that, um, you know, c- currencies are just dis- like non-core currencies are disappearing. Yeah. And so like, if, if you fast forward a hundred years, how many currencies are left, right? Like yeah. we, we would think that, you know, the U S dollar is still around. You would, th- we'd probably think like Japanese yen, yeah. uh, you know, Ch- Chinese yuan. Um, but like, it's not clear to me that, you know, I won't pick on the on the Swiss. I guess they they have an argument to to, to defend their currency forever. It's not clear to me that every currency that's out there today is going to uh, continue to ex- exist. And um, I think more and more countries will start to peg and um, connect into one of the big big major ones. And when that is the truth, then there is no currency mismatch because then your yeah. income and your liabilities are the same. It's in it's yeah. in the same denomination. Yeah. However, I do think in the medium term where this problem is quite big. And I think it's going to be 50 to 100 years before that really, really transpires. Um, I think there's a total call to action for a startup that builds a global clearinghouse that makes it super easy to settle and trade in almost any currency. Um, we have so many customers that on a constant basis ask for, um, can we decide to ad hoc uh, settle a transaction in reals versus in dollar? Um, or pesos versus in dollar. And what's hard to do today is you don't have this ubiquitous, easy to use clearinghouse just sitting in the middle that you can say, yeah, we're just gonna plug into this. We're gonna have all the settlement accounts in different currencies here. Uh, Get some kind of protection between trade and fluctuations of currency. And then just clearly process payments or lend or transfer money in and out of the ecosystem and have it just work. Yeah. Yeah, I'd I'd love to see that. I mean that 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 would help accelerate this this whole point. I mean I we're 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 fascinated with this this problem. We we kind of we view it as a uh it's a kind of an unstoppable force uh in a way if you, if you yeah. believe if you are pro consumer in your thinking, if you are more free market in your thinking, um some of these, you know, um historical reasons for why this hasn't existed, like that's going to increasingly become kind of inertia based thinking. And it's really a, a a matter of time, but I really think the longest pull uh, in the tent here is is the regulatory comfort. Um, okay. And so I I think it um, I think there are certain pockets where it's faster to create this, like in the small business space, yeah. rather than in the consumer uh, space. And then I think there are certain corridors in certain countries that are going to be more willing to do this than others. So let's nip at that for a second, right? Like uh, I have two examples that are. Um, that are kind of like, I feel like there's a desire to solve this problem faster in some regions and not as fast in other regions, right? So uh, uh, let's even go beyond inflation. Let's take Ukraine and Sri Lanka, yep. um, where 
I would kind of argue that this is probably not the top of mind for a regulator, given everything else that's going on. And I, I consider that as a red hot scenario, which is like, how can you help people divest out of uh, a very uncertain and turbulent time? And then the second one comes as inflation, which is to your point, Venezuela, Argentina, Brazil, and so on. Um, what are your thoughts on this? Like, I don't like how how is a Sri Lankan regulator or a Ukrainian regulator going to perceive this, given what's happening locally? Yeah, I have a lot of thoughts. I mean, the, the Ukraine problem, we, we've spent a lot of time um, thinking about acting on. Um, and when uh, you know, it's, it's a problem, it's, it's it's a war that's very near and dear in my heart. Um, you know, much, much of my family is, is, is from Ukraine. Yeah. Um, and uh, when this first transpired, uh, when the war first broke out, you know, we reached out to every contact we had, the World Bank, the IFC, the bureaus, to try to get in front of, uh, in front of the bureaus in, in Ukraine. And uh, it's, it's one of these, um, it, it's, it's the first refugee crisis where uh, the local credit bureau infrastructure is robust. Yeah. It's never happened before. Like you, you look at the Syrian refugee crisis, the you know, Afghan refugee crisis, you know, the, the local credit bureau coverage was in the order of like one to 4%. Yeah. Ukraine has coverage roughly between 85 and, and into the low 90s, depending on how you think about the bureaus there. And so it's like, oh my God, this is an opportunity where cross-border, you know, credit portability um, could be a game changer, could, could be, you know, life-saving. Um, yeah. And I think when, when you think about these like red hot, to use your language, uh, situations, you know, the first few weeks or, or, or months, um, the challenge was really about, uh, can you actually get in touch with the individuals who are the decision makers, who have the resources to start to invest in a new partner, enablement, integration. And, you know, eventually we, we, we figured that out. We do have a partnership in Ukraine with one of the leading, leading bureaus. But then the next part of the puzzle becomes, well, who's going to trust this information, right? Who, who's really going to be willing to use this information to take risk? Um, and we found that that has been has been more challenging. I mean, obviously, our, our core market is is the U.S. The Ukrainian um, uh, you know migrant flows have been fairly muted into the United States. There was a period yeah. where you know I believe Biden announced that the U.S. would accept somewhere around two hundred thousand. I'm, I'm not sure where where we are towards that number, but places like Poland saw you know several million people arrive yeah. in, in the span of a few weeks. So that's like years of migrant flow in the span of a few weeks. Um, and there, you know, we, we don't, uh, we don't have business in Poland, but th th that's an, that's an area where we have seen success of people being able to open accounts using this in for some of this identity information. Yeah. Uh, I haven't heard proof points on the credit side, but everything we're talking about here, um, there could have been a better way. Like if, if, if global credit already, already existed, you could, you could see a world where you would believe that, you know. Ukrainian credit bureau data could be used to open up a U.S. dollar account and you know open unlock a unsecured line, but I think one of the, one of the challenges with with um with these like red hot scenarios is that the underlying ability to pay of the consumer is in question. Yeah, and so when a when a consumer is going through so much economic change, historical. And it's a, and social change. Historical behavior is still an indicator, but in many ways, it's it's overpowered by what's going to happen to this person's ability to generate an income yeah. uh, and repay the obligations that they're taking on. Is that primarily the reason why you think uh, there has been reduced receptivity to pretty much this credit portability in these red hot situations? Because it's just a very uncertain environment, and you don't you know around credit uh what what would transpire but that should not happen around deposits um i don't think that should i mean the deposits are, are, are that's more an identity question and a yeah. kyc question than it is an, an a, a ability to repay uh yeah. question like my, my belief and our, our philosophy on this stuff is you know credit bureau data is typically uh viewed as um, willingness to repay, right? It's, it's a character um, lens of like, does an individual who used to always repay, like, do we believe that no matter the circumstances, they're going to do everything in their power to continue to repay? And that, I don't think, you know, we've seen evidence to, to the contrary on that. I think that holds true. But yeah. the ability to pay question um, 
is 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 a different question, right? You can have a perfect assessment of someone's character, but if they legitimately can no longer be employed because they've relocated and the new economy is unwilling to employ them for whatever reason, or there's just, there are just too many people, um, th- then it's hard to imagine that they will be able to repay. And so then it's a question of like which economies can successfully um, absorb um, populations like this and yeah. employ them. And so I think that the U.S. environment will be able to absorb 200,000 people. We absorb, you know, two to three million people every year. It's not that yeah. significant of an increase. But in a scenario like like Poland, they received several years of migration in the span of a few weeks. I think that's a very different environment. Yeah. Is there a call to action there? Is there some capability that's missing that makes that whole experience much more easier for people outside of just global cash and global credit? Um, I think there's a call to action around just like financial literacy for this for this segment of like understanding their their options. Um, so when, when we were doing our homework on the problem space and getting involved in a number of um, you know of, of industry bodies trying to help uh, do what they can to support the situation, you know there are so many questions that were coming from the field of like what can I do with my local country currency to exchange into euros? Like how do I do it? And so I think there's there's always a an opportunity to create more content and um, uh, and frankly a curriculum on on what do you do as as a migrant as you move from one country to another and what services are out there to to support you. We've put a bit of thought into that, but by no yeah. means have we have we solved that problem. It's like nerd wallet, but more global. That's right. In nature, yeah. Um, I have a question that I haven't asked you ever before, but uh, I was thinking about this a little bit more recently. Um, Thinking about Twitter and uh, Facebook and uh, these social media platforms that are trying to create a trusted safe space uh, to just converse and interact. And we've seen so much of a debate around uh, bots and spam accounts and uh, fake and forged accounts. Um, Looking through this whole um, credit yet identity uh, verification workflow that you showed me the other day where you have KBAs and 2FA and you can just onboard customers a much more meaningful and uh, a sophisticated way. Do you think there's a place for the technology that you are building and some of the other people are building around social media? And because I would argue social media is um, this it's it's this it's still digital migration you're 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 going in this like foreign land which is not physical but uh you inhabit this place and you're having conversations that in some cases have real consequences and today there's no real identity infrastructure that is scalable that exists there yeah yeah i think there's there's a lot to unpack there i mean i mean we, we we've seen um We've seen the social, like the big social media giants take big steps in this, in this direction, right? So like obviously um, everything to do with, you know, the Apple, uh, you know, face, facial recognition uh, is a way, you know, is is one key step in that direction. Um, Being able to do Apple Pay uh, is another step. Um, You know, Facebook Meta had this big investment in in Novi, which was their kind of uh, big foray into, um, I would say I mean, you could even say into global credit um, yeah. in, in, in a way, maybe with more of a merchant lens than a consumer lens, but most of yeah. the merchants are consumers. Um, and so I, th- I think that, I think it's spot on that there, that there is a, a need there um, to, you know, harden their confidence around uh, I- identity. And, you know, the next step of that is uh, um, harden the confidence in the, not only the identity, but the financial history uh, of of that consumer, um, because that can unlock a whole suite of additional you know products and, and and services. To be honest, we we haven't spent a lot of cycles on on the opportunity uh, there. Um, I think as more of the you know the, the 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 social media giants do take steps into financial services and consumer finance, those opportunities um, will will grow. Um, um, but I think they are already under enough regulatory pressure that I don't see them being the ones to really break break through uh, and, and and lead the charge in 
globalizing consumer finance. I think the way that they would attack it is much more uh, country by country basis, not by not through corridors, uh, but by you know build a product in, mar- in market A and then do everything and redo it in, in product B as opposed to you know the world the, the the product and country A is available to the world. Okay, yeah, I think that's fair, but maybe. And I think the funny thing is, I think Airbnb is the only one who I think has done a good job of uh, identity verification and taking that very seriously to build a community because you're going and living in somebody's house. You you need to know a little bit about them and the other way around. Um, and I do wonder if that is also needed on a platform like Twitter because um, there is tons of public trust on, on certain accounts and um, those number of accounts are only growing and... I'm not sure if current mechanisms do a good enough of a job of verifying someone's identity. Right. Yeah. You. You could. You could see. Um, yeah. I'm. I'm. I'm not very familiar with. Um, you know what it takes to get a blue check mark. Um, but. But I could. I could see uh, ways where you know you. You could automate pieces of that workflow if. If the yeah. user goes through capabilities something similar to, to what we have or what other providers out there um, yeah. have around identity. I think that makes sense. Um, anything else you think that we didn't cover? We had this long conversation. Um, I mean, you, you use the word um, call, call to action a, a few times, and um, you know, I, I'd love to ring that bell as well, and, and say we'd love to see uh, more companies out there who you know are working on problems around um, global credit. I think there's just there's so much opportunity in Blue Ocean there to. Um, uh, stitch together the world's consumer lending market, um, and I think you know building on on the backs of you know uh, the hard work that that we and you and other companies have have done over the years. I think the problem is is becoming um, ever more solvable, yeah. um, and you know I, I think you know we we've stitched together credit reporting. Um, many companies have stitched together identity. I think we've stitched together components of identity. Considering if you think about a credit file. The identity yeah. is just the header; it's the top of the file, and there's almost so much more rich information beyond that. Um, you know, I, I think there's we're, we're probably, you know, maybe not a stone's throw away, but I, th- I think it's getting closer. And I think that um, you know some of these, the, some of the cross-border uh, credit card companies that um, that are out there have, have done great work, and we'd love to see more of them form and and across not only cards but but other product lines as as well. Yeah. Um, there's players in the mortgage space. There's um, some players starting to emerge in the small business space. Uh, and so if there's anyone out there listening that's, uh, that's interested in thinking through this more, um, I would be happy to talk through it and, and share a little bit more about how we've been thinking about this problem. I, com- I cannot agree more. Um, I think we're very close, but there are still capabilities like the clearinghouse, um, uh, fintechs that are just generally approaching this problem. Uh, but I think like we're technically getting super close to be able to solve this for everybody. Love it. Awesome. Misha, thank you so much for joining me. Um, it was it was a really good conversation. I enjoyed having you here. Thanks for having me on. Uh, excited to see where this goes. We should, we should do this again in a couple of years and see how much closer we are to, 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 to the Holy Grail. Yeah, that would be awesome. Thank you. To our listeners, thanks for joining as well. If you want to hear this episode or more, you can always go to synapsefy.com slash under the hood. Uh, thank you for joining. Bye. Did you know a podcast episode like this can provide literally dozens of marketing content assets for your business? It's brought to you by Content Monster, your go-to for engaging marketing content like this podcast or remote video production. It's not just a podcast. It's your marketing powerhouse. Visit contentmonster.com to learn more. That's contentmonsta.com.